So I had a bit of a sabbatical since uh, the second week in August. And during that time, um, I spent it in, in study, as your pastors often do when we're not actively preaching or teaching. We're in the Word, we're in other pieces of literature, other books, preparing ourselves, educating ourselves. And what interested me during this time period, what I was examining was the third question in the great conversation of of Western culture, which is, what is the destiny of man? Where are we going? That follows up the first question, where did we come from? The second question, why are we here? And then thirdly, where are we going? So I spent time both in theological works and in secular works. The secular viewpoint on destination is very troubling. There's no hope in that. Ultimately, it is hopeless. And it's difficult to imagine people thinking like that living like that day in and day out, you, of course, would have to fill your life with other things to keep from thinking about hopelessness. You'd have to fill your life with material things, purchasing things, wanting things, getting the next new car, new boat, new house, or sports, or celebrity stuff. You know, just anything to take your mind off of it off of where am I going, where am I going to end up? Hopeless. But this morning, I really want to talk to you about hope and victory, not hopelessness, because our God does not bring us hopelessness. He brings us hope. He brings us victory. And that's what I would like to bring to you this morning. Now, the title of this sermon, in case you're taking notes, is The Last Enemy. And our main verse is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26. The Last Enemy, 1 Corinthians 15, 26. So if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that the Lord God brings us a victory story in it. But it is what might be referred to as a paradoxical victory story. That is, a paradox. Paradox means that it's difficult, almost impossible to comprehend. Things seem to oppose one another. They don't go together. For example, in Scripture we find weakness is strength. The poor are rich. The cursed are blessed. And a nobody from nowhere is the one who made all things. And death brings life. And death will die in the death of the one who is alive forevermore. These are paradoxical. They are, in other words, illogical to secular human reasoning. Now, our main text, 1 Corinthians 15 
26. It's very short. Paul's writing here, and he says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. A very short statement, but a very powerful statement. In this chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul is concentrating on, he's talking about, he's writing about the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of believers. That's us, brothers and sisters. And in the verse prior to our main one, verse 25, Paul gives a free quotation. That is, it's in his own words. He's not copying from a manuscript. So it's a little bit different than what we might find in our Bible. But he's quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, which says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Then the declaration... With this declaration, the last enemy to be be destroyed is death. Paul is applying Psalm 110 verse 1 to his main theme of resurrection. Everything's going to flow together in this chapter towards his main theme here. Verse 26, our main verse in biblical Greek, literally says, let enemy... Excuse me, last enemy is destroyed, death. It's very to the point, and it's emphasized. And Paul uses the present tense in this sentence because this, what he's talking about, the destruction of death, is a process of victory. At the time he's writing this, it's occurring. It's occurring now, even now in our time. It's ongoing. And this word he uses about what is happening to death, destroyed, is a a very strong verb. It can also be translated as annihilated or made non-existent. Defeated, however, though, it's too weak a term for what Paul means here. It's more than, than death is defeated. All the power of death is to be and is being removed. That is significant. It means something that's just tremendous, that it's very difficult for us to comprehend because we live with death, don't we? Death is part of our world. We try to ignore it, but it's there. And the idea that it is to completely be removed, if we grasp that, then all the hopelessness in the secular world is annihilated also. And Paul, you know, we know him often as the apostle to the Gentiles, is also the apostle of victory. We see this here, how he loves to preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet modern theologians attempt to divide Paul from Jesus Christ. Skeptics even claim that Paul completely reinterpreted Jesus' teachings in order to establish a new religion, Christianity. That this was Paul's idea. That Jesus never intended this. Why do they do this? What's the reasoning behind it? Well, of course, I don't know exactly, but this is what I think. Natural man cannot grasp the good news of Christ. That's a given. Our Lord tells us that in Scripture. We we understand that. That's true. 
and also because serious critical scholars, <clears throat> people that, 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 that actually study this and are learned in it and have lots of those, lots of those really fancy titles after their name, the critical scholars recognize the undeniable historicity of Jesus of Nazareth. That was, is, he is a real person. Now, you may get the village atheist who will say, no, he never existed. But no real scholar, even the critical non-believers, will say Jesus did not exist. That matter has been dealt with and it's been tossed aside and occasionally it pops up. But no one really pays much attention to that in academia because they know that just isn't so. There's too much historical evidence of this man, Jesus, at the turn of the century, the first century, which is the turn of the century because of him, right? We wouldn't have first century A.D. if it was not for Jesus. The evidence is overwhelming. They don't, they don't even deal with that. They just say, yeah, yeah, he, he, he existed. They also, and here's an important fact, they acknowledge that textual evidence for the Gospels, now textual evidence means the manuscripts that we get our Bibles from, the ancient ancient writings that we have. The textual evidence for the Gospels as authentic writings of the early Christian church is overwhelming. Very few serious scholars will argue that these writings came about centuries and centuries after the supposed life of this preacher in Judea in the first century. Okay, they can't attack that. So that leaves Paul's writings, almost half of the New Testament, as a main focus of criticism. Now, this is just how I see it. They're not going to come out and say that, well, we can't attack it this way, so we attack it this way. But they see this as, although, you know, we have to admit it's an interesting area of study, uh, of, of scholarship. It's not that they're looking for... Uh, you know, an easy target. These men and women that are in this, this type of uh, scholarly pursuit uh, are quite serious about what they do, and they try to do it, I think most of them, to the best of their uh, ability. So, <clears throat> but the importance of Paul's writings are this. He provides us with a deeper understanding of the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. He expounds theologically for us, and he establishes doctrine to a greater extent, in quantity at least, if not quality, than the other New Testament writers. I'm not saying that he's better, a better writer, or deeper thinker, or a greater theologian than the other New Testament writers. No, not at all. But he's written a lot more than, than any of the other ones. So a couple of years, let's, let's get into what's going on in our text here. A couple of years after the Apostle Paul established this church in Corinth, and he spent about 18 months there, according to Acts chapter 18, verse 1. This was during his second missionary journey, which was around 51 to 52 A.D., right? How do we know that? Well, because of an archaeological find. You know, there's a lot of this stuff, at one time, scholars and even lay people were saying, well, this stuff isn't real, it's just made up. And then we find archaeological evidence. We find this piece, we find that piece, we find another piece that support exactly what God's Word says 
occurred? Well, they found um, a pavement stone that was inscribed with the proconsul of this area of Greek, Achaia, a guy by the name of uh, Galileo, and his term was one year between what we call 51-52 A.D., which is exactly what's written in the Acts of the Apostles, our book of Acts, supported. And basically, no one knew he was there until then, except the people that were there and wrote about it. They knew. But people later saying, eh, see, this doesn't make... Oh, look, I guess he was here. So, Paul receives word that the Corinthian Christians had lost their way. They had forgotten what he had taught them about Christ and the Christian faith. They were turning back to their pagan way, the ways of the Greco-Roman culture. And at this time, it's probably around 54 or 55 AD, Paul is in Ephesus. That's in Asia Minor, Turkey today. While Corinth is on the Isthmus, the little strip of land between the, the Greek mainland, Achaia, and the Peloponnesus Peninsula. It's a very important place. So Paul's separated from Corinth by the Aegean Sea. There's no way he can get there quickly. An ocean voyage would take a long time. The overland journey would be, would be longer and arduous. So since he can't be there, he writes them this letter which we call 1 Corinthians. He writes them a series of letters, actually, and 1 Corinthians actually probably isn't the first letter that he wrote, but it's the one that the Lord God preserved for us. This is, this is evidence that it's inspired writing, that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write what's in here because God decreed that this letter would be saved, even though there were previous ones that just have crumbled to dust and no one knows anything about them. But we have this one. And in this first letter we have, in what we call the 15th chapter, and Paul didn't break down these into chapters, this is just a long letter. But in chapter 15, he reminds them of the gospel he preached to them. The good news, the euangelion in Greek. And he says in verse 3 of this chapter, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So Paul is reminding them. He's basically saying, I gave to you what I was also given. And then the verses that follow, here, here's, the, here's some important stuff here. These are known as the pre-Pauline creed. The following verses. It means that this is a statement that was in existence before Paul becomes a Christian, before Paul becomes a preacher, before Paul is planting churches. In creed, it's called a creed. Creed is a fixed formula summarizing the essentials of the Christian faith. So Paul's statement here is evidence that this creed was in existence, right? He says, I gave to you what I received. That is, before his conversion and before his teaching. And this, the interesting thing about this creed, and it tells us what Christian preaching looked like before there was a single New Testament book. The earliest gospel, we think, is probably Mark's. Not sure. 
There's, there's arguments um, about that. But let's say it's Mark. Well, confessing scholars, that is, scholars that believe that this is God's word and, are, and declare the Christian faith, they, they give it kind of an early date. They think Mark's gospel was written around 50 to 60 A.D. Now, critical scholars, those that perhaps aren't Christians, but they, their job is to you know, study and, and write and talk about this stuff, they give it a later date, about 70 A.D. So there's not a big time gap here, pretty close. So we know from evidence and writings that Paul is in Corinth around 51 A.D. There's, that means there's no New Testament yet. Even if, if Mark finished his New Testament, his gospel, at, on 50 A.D., it's not going to get disseminated to the church in such a short time period in the ancient world. So, there's no New Testament yet, and he teaches these new Christians this. This is the pre-Pauline creed. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So in the original Greek, this is identifiable as being in a creedal formula. How do scholars know that? How do they identify it? It's very rhythmic in its writing. It doesn't match Paul's writing. It's like... He's writing, and then suddenly he shifts into something that's like, whoa, everything just changed. It's like if I was writing you a letter, and suddenly I started writing four score and seven years ago, our fathers established upon this land, you would go, whoa, whoa that's not Ken's writing. That's, that's shifted completely. So they see that there. This rhythmic beat to it is dot, 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 dot. It's a, it's, a, it's a memory aid. It's written in a way that it can be easily memorized by people that have no Bible, that have no written Bible, or are illiterate and cannot read. It's like a nursery rhyme. It's like, it's like you know, consider Psalm 23. It's not, obviously not a nursery rhyme, but how easy that is to memorize because of the beat, the flow of that psalm that David wrote. So how early is this creedal formula? So we know from the book of Acts, chapter 9, about Paul's conversion. Brother Barry referred to it this morning in the communion meditation. The events of Acts 9, Saul on the road to Damascus being converted, occur two to three years after the events of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 is the very end of of Jesus' earthly ministry, right? It's, he's been resurrected. He's appearing before his disciples and he's giving them instructions and they watch him ascend into heaven. James D.G. Dunn was a New Testament scholar at the University of Durham. He was considered one of the foremost critical scholarly experts 
on the historical Jesus. He says the latest this creedal formula could have come about is only months after the cross event, that this is very early. Larry Hurtado, probably a little bit better known, some of you may have read some of his works or heard about him. Larry was the New Testament scholar at the University of Edinburgh. He says this creed came out with, in this form days after the cross and the resurrection. Days. It was so important to teach and to teach in a form that people, you know, days after the resurrection, this isn't going to be written down anywhere, is it? No. What are the disciples doing? They're, they're like, they're, they're, they're shocked, they're surprised, they're in awe. The Lord is risen. They're trying to, to spread the word in this creedal formula. Someone who probably was a teacher comes up with this. This is how will get people to, re- to memorize it, to, to, to remember it. So we have three top scholars of the historical Jesus. I mentioned Dunn, Hurtado, and there's also Richard uh, Bauckham. He's a New Testament scholar at Cambridge in England. All of them, all three of these top-level guys, say immediately after the ground zero event of the cross, the following facts were known, believed, and taught by the earliest Christians. That Jesus died that he was raised from the dead, and he is worshipped as God. Now, this is important. In the Christian church, it may not seem important to us. Those are just givens, right? It's like, yes, yes, we know that, Pastor Ken. I mean, that's not, that's not uh, an issue. Yes, it is. It very much is an issue in the secular world, in the academic world. The claim by, by some in those spheres is that Jesus as God was a later development, much later, that the, the early Christians didn't believe that. Whoa, they're wrong, according to these three top scholars. And the written evidence that we have in our Bible, the creedal formula, shows this is very early. It's not in, Christ as God was not invented by Paul. And other men. That's, that idea is demonstrably false. We have the proof. So Paul is teaching exactly what was taught by the disciples of Jesus immediately after the ground zero event of crucifixion and resurrection. Paul did not depart from the teachings of the first apostles. That's important. Not only that, but as Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia, the region of Galatia, in the book we call Galatians, chapter 1, verse 12, he tells the Galatians that he received the gospel not from men, but through a revelation to him from Jesus Christ. Paul gets his good news, his theology and his doctrine, directly from Christ, and it is the same which the other apostles taught the early church. Paul makes use of what the, early, the other apostles taught the church, and he teaches this creedal formula to the Corinthians. So this, all that I just told you, is how we know this stuff is so. It's not made up. It's not invented. It's not exaggerated upon. It's the good news because it is the true news. And here's my point. 
The good news is even good news about death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When Paul calls death the last enemy, we realize, we think about it, if there's a last, there must be a first enemy, and perhaps others in between, right? There there are more than one enemy if there's a last. The first enemy appears very early in the Bible in Genesis 3. You all know the story. Here in Genesis 3, is called the serpent, Hanakash, the serpent, which can also be translated as the shining one. Ezekiel, in the 28th chapter of his book, verses 14 and 16, he identifies this being in the garden as an anointed guardian cherub. This is the same class of beings, cherubim, as those who guard the garden after the fall. So this being, who appears in Genesis chapter 3, later in the Bible is definitely identified as who we call Satan. Revelation uh, 12.9 tells us that. And in the Greek of the New Testament, Satan is a proper noun. It's a name. That's why it's capitalized. That's like what this being answers to. That's not the case in the Hebrew of, of the Old Testament. It's, it's not a proper noun. It's not a name. It's a common noun. It means something in Hebrew. It means accuser or adversary or enemy. It's most often written as ha-satan, the enemy. And the New Testament expands upon this. It reveals to us that Satan, capital S, is the arch enemy of God. This brings me to my first point, point number one. The enemy's tactic is to divide us from the Lord God. The enemy's tactic is to divide us from the Lord God. The first enemy enters into the garden of God and he brings death with him. When God placed the man, Ha-Adam, in the garden, God speaks a word of command to the man. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the first covenant between God and and his image bearer man. It's initiated by God. Every biblical covenant is initiated by God. We call this the covenant of works, this command that man is given. Then God creates woman from the side of man, Isha. Isha and Ha'adim are united in marriage. They become one flesh. The first enemy causes the woman to doubt the word of the Lord, spoken to her husband in the covenant of works. So see what the enemy's doing here. He's dividing the allegiance between husband and wife and between the Lord God. In his division against the Lord God, he, 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 he carries on this dialogue with the woman. It's very tricky. He says, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? First questioning God's word, right? Did he really say that? Come on. You sure? How do you know? No. 
Then he lies about it. Then he says, you will not surely die. Just an out-and-out blatant lie. This is a high-ranking angel here. This is a cherubim. These are the throne guardians. These are some of the spiritual beings that are the closest to the glory of God. So this being knows what's true and what's false, and he lies between his fangs. The serpent's lie is about death. The first enemy lies and distracts about the last enemy. They're in cahoots, so to speak. But God is true to his word. God is always true to his word, even when it is to man's disadvantage, as it is here. God meant what he commanded Adam. In the next, very next chapter of the Bible, chapter 4, violent death comes into the world. Because Adam and Eve, they don't die right away, right? They kind of think they're going to. That's why they're hiding in the garden. But they get kicked out of the garden. But violent death comes. The first son of the first couple murders the first brother. A violent, bloody act of anger. Then the next chapter after that, we come to the first genealogy in the Bible. I know genealogies aren't very exciting. We don't often know what they're there for. But if you read this in chapter 5, you're going to notice something. You read it closely and you think about what you're reading. You're going to notice a repetitiveness. There's something that's repeated. And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. Everybody's dying. Now... That doesn't really stand out to us, right? Because we're, we're reading it later on in history. And, and imagine if you can. This is almost impossible to imagine. But imagine if you, if you went back before death entered into the garden, before man rebelled against God. And you re- read this stuff. It would be like, I can't believe this. Their first baby murders their second baby. There's death. And then everybody that comes after them, they die, they die, they die. We're lost. We're hopeless. There's no way out of this. Almost, you can almost sense the panic that would set in. We remove ourselves from death, especially now in our society. We don't want to deal with it. Although, interestingly, we are a death-worshipping cult. That's what's around us. We see it in abortion. We see it now in euthanasia with, with the elderly. There's many in important positions that prize death, that they, they use death. Death is now the destiny of man. Man has lost the garden because he rebelled against God. Mighty angels with a sword of flame bar the way back into the garden. We cannot get into the garden. Adam couldn't get into the garden. If he had had the mightiest human army on earth, he could not have assaulted those gates and got through them. They would have all died. Well, they're all going to die anyway, right? There's no way humanly possible to return to the center of the garden where the tree of life is. Man is barred. From that tree. We are born now with the seeds of death within us because of our first 
parents. As Octavius Wilson, a 19th century English preacher and author, wrote, We are but as flowers blooming for the tomb. Man, those are sad words. That's hopelessness right there. But Brother Octavius is a Christian. He goes on and he tells the good news. But this idea here that he captures so poetically makes poets weep and philosophers rage over the helplessness of the human condition. It's interesting. Secular poet philosophers of the mid-late to 20th century foretell of an attempt that will come to overthrow the created order and achieve immortality. And the way they talk about this thing, these things, 50, 60 years ago, is about stuff that's happening today. It's about, they talk about transhumanism. They talk about transsexualism. They talk about the end of marriage between men and women. They talk about same-sex attraction being the norm. All of this, we must understand, it's not, it's not just perversion of thought, although it's that. It's to make meaningful the meaningless of a creation with no creator. There's no point to this from a secular perspective. And of life, to make meaning out of life that has no destiny apart from death. There's no reason for it. What are children taught in many places today? What is reinforced that you're an accident? It's just, you just happen, well, all of us just happen to be here. There's some weird thing that happened with this goo that maybe before there was this, there was that, but there wasn't anything, and now here we are. But there's no reason for us to be here, so... Do what thou will. Bring me to my second point here, point number two. The sin of the first Adam brought death, so all men will die. The sin of the first Adam brought death, so all men will die. I know this is really obvious, what I just said. Much of what I say, the points I'm going to make are really obvious, but they need to be made, right? This is what God's word teaches us. How many times do we need to hear the gospel? As many times as the Lord allows us to hear the gospel. That's how many times. It's not like, I already told him once about the resurrection. I think we talked about it five, six years ago. I, I don't know if I need to bring. No, I want to hear about the resurrection every day. I want to hear about the resurrection every Lord's Day. And I know you do too. But here's the deal. And this is why we need to hear it over and over again. Even those of us that are Christians, those of us that have been saved, those of us that believe, we easily fall prey to deception. Even self-deception. If us, then how much more the non-believer, the unbeliever? We think all of us, and act as if death is escapable. Often by pretending that death awaits others, but, but not us. <laughs> no, no, he's not coming for me. So there's this, this, this man by the name of Viktor Frankl. He was, he was a neurologist and a psychiatrist in Germany. He was Jewish. 
but didn't go over well at the time he lived. He and his family were put on a train, and they were taken to this place called Auschwitz. And he spent the remainder of the war in Auschwitz and Dachau. He wrote this book called In Man's Search for Meaning. And in Man's Search for Meaning, he writes about what he terms the delusion of reprieve. He says this is a condition recognized in psychiatry. They've done these studies that he he writes about where a condemned prisoner, someone in uh, in a state prison who's committed an awful crime and is condemned to death, how these condemned prisoners believe often up to the very last moment that they will be reprieved and escape death, even as the noose is put over their head. And he saw this, interestingly enough, he saw this in Auschwitz. He saw his fellow inmates when they got off the train and they're being processed, that each step of their processing most believed they would be the exception to the extermination process. And at each step in the process, there was a Nazi officer who would make a decision which way you went. If you went to the right, you lived a little bit longer, maybe only a few minutes. If you went to the left, you were taken away and put to death immediately. No one believed they were going to the left. This is what Frankel saw. Frankel escaped because he managed to retain his strength and he could work. They used him as a laborer for the, the, the last few years of the war. But those that could not work, or just for any whim whatsoever, the officer could just send them to the left. So natural man fools himself. Sure, people die, but not me, at least not yet, right? Not yet, no, it's not time. But when the enemy, death comes, it, it often comes swiftly, without warning. When, when death is delayed, that, that's a blessing. God uses death. It could be a blessing to us that we know, okay, I've just been diagnosed with this horrible thing and I don't have long to live. I can make amends. I can tell m- my friends, my family, how much I love them. If I do not believe in Christ, if I'm estranged from God, maybe I can get right with the Lord. But honestly, brothers and sisters, very few unbelievers do that. There's very few deathbed conversions. By that time, one's heart has been so hardened that even the prospect of death most often does not soften it. And that is chilling. If you hear these words and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus I beg you, as I hold back tears, to think about your ultimate destination. That this is offered to you, everlasting life with the God who loves far beyond any of us have ever experienced. It's free. You do not have to do a thing. I give thanks for you brothers and sisters here who are believers, who help Bear me and each other up with your belief, with your faith, with your daily life. That is a blessing to us. 
But with death, we cannot negotiate with this enemy. We cannot bribe him. We cannot trick him. There's this ancient Persian fable. Maybe you've heard it, but I think it's really, it's really interesting. There's this wealthy Persian merchant. He's walking in his garden. When his servant comes running in and his servant is terrified, he says that death is after him. He just came from the marketplace. He turns a corner in a marketplace. He comes face to face with death. He realizes who this is. He turns and he runs for home as quick as he can. He says, Master, Master, please, please let me have one of your fastest horses and let me ride. I'm going to ride as fast as I can and to Tehran to get away from death, who is here. And his master is a good master. He says, yes, servant, go, go, escape death. So the servant runs, he jumps on this Arabian steed, and off he gallops, galloping, riding for his life. His master returns to the garden, and death comes into the garden and appears to the master. Death says, it's your time. And he says, wait a minute, then why did you terrify my servant? Death says, I didn't didn't terrify your servant. I ran into him in the marketplace and and I was shocked because I'm supposed to see him tonight in Tehran. The point of this, the moral of this very old story is that death is unavoidable and our days are numbered. Even when death comes with a warning, as I said, few will come to Christ. But the, the, the idea of our days being numbered, this is, this is what the Bible tells us uh, also. And by that point of the deathbed, these hardened hearts just delay disaster. In Psalm 90, which is called a prayer of Moses, the man of God, the psalmist petitions the Lord in verse 12. He asks the Lord, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. If it is wisdom to know our days are numbered, then it is foolishness to live as though they are without number. The Lord Jesus said, do not be anxious about your life. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? He tells his disciples they have no reason to fear that not even a little sparrow falls from the sky or a hair from their heads each of which is numbered without the Father's knowledge. That these small, seemingly insignificant things are done only by the Heavenly Father's decree. This brings me to point three. Life and death are under the Lord's sovereign control. Life and death are under the Lord's sovereign control. So how do we not fear death? That's the important application here. Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. What the Lord is saying here, by our relationship with Jesus in the here and now, right now, he says, everyone who acknowledges me before men. So how we live in this physical world, what we do here, has a direct 
correlation in the spiritual world. What comes later? He says, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. For the faithful Christ is our merciful mediator. However, the unbeliever stands alone when he's on trial for his eternal life. What Jesus says here is obviously a pre-resurrection declaration. After the cross, the Lord Jesus is even clearer because the destruction of death began at the resurrection. The resurrected Son of God appears to John, the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos. And John writes in the first chapter of Revelation, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. The Lord Jesus is saying he has authority over death and Hades. That's what the keys mean. He's demonstrated his authority over death. He's demonstrated this by what he foretold his disciples. Matthew 16, he takes them to this place of really scary to, um, to religious Jews in the first century. Uh, the territory of Bashan, Mount Hermon, which is all sorts of spiritual evil, was associated with this place. And there he tells them that the gates of Hades will not be able to keep him in. He proves this to be true. So Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 15 that the entirety of our faith, everything we believe, centers on the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection, Christianity is nothing. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Your faith is then futile, and you are still in your sins. There's no point in this if the resurrection is not true. It's not about our works. It's what Christ has done. What we do is futile and cannot save us. But this is not of our doing. Paul exclaims, verse 15, that God raises the dead. Jesus Christ is the proof of that. Verse 20, he says, Christ is the firstfruits of those who have died. And he tells us, by a man came death. That's the first Adam in the garden. By a man, that's the second Adam, the Lord Jesus. By a man has come the resurrection of the dead. The Puritan Thomas Watson, he wrote this. The bodies of the saints shall be immortal. Here, our bodies are still dying. It is improper to ask when, we, when shall we die, but rather when shall we make an end of dying. First the infancy dies, then the childhood, then youth, then old age, and then we make an end of dying. In heaven our mortal shall put on immortality. What Brother Watson is saying is here is that we who are in Christ need not fear death. Paul in Romans says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Conquerors, more than conquerors. 
Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it should. The Lord wrote some letters through the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. They're recorded. Seven different churches. And in most of them, not all of them, there's a church that has some problems where he doesn't talk to the conquerors. He writes, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The garden of God has been opened back up for Christ's people. We are allowed in. He, Jesus, is truly the first fruits of the tree of life which we will partake of. So our salvation is anchored in the love of God through Christ. We are eternally secure. And concerning this salvation, Peter writes in 1 Peter 1-2, these are things into which the angels long to look. Now that's an interesting statement. About the angels. We, they don't, the Bible doesn't tell us much about the angels. They're not central to the message that God has given us. But once in a while there are things like this. It's what we deduce from this. There's no salvation open to the angels. There's no sacrifice to atone for their sin if they sinned. The Son became mortal in order to be man's perfect sacrifice. The angels who fell are fallen forevermore. The elect angels, however, are preserved by God's eternal decree, decree, just as elect humans are preserved, have eternal security. Here's point four, our last point. God uses his enemies to his glory. God uses his enemies to his glory. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This Greek verb, destroyed, is also used elsewhere in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It's used here. And it says, through death he, Jesus Christ, might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil. Through death he is going to destroy he who has the power of death. That's, what, that's the paradoxical stuff that I was telling you about at the beginning of this. That is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's why the secular world, when you read secular writers, poets, philosophers, there is no hope. They live in fear of death. They are in lifelong slavery. Brothers and sisters, we are to be different from that. We have hope. We have victory. It's been proclaimed. We are different than the world. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16 says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. This is the spiritual offspring. So those who are united, in, grafted in as a wild root into Israel. Ending with, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24, Then comes the end. Paul writes, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So Paul here is speaking of death and Hades, as well as Satan, as uh, well as Satan and the and the wicked angels, all of these as terms, by the terms he uses, rule, authority, and power. Everything, all this bad stuff's in view here. 
in, in Revelation 20, near the end of that book, death and Hades are spoken of as demonic powers in a symbolic sort of way. And on Judgment Day, we're told they, death and Hades, will give up the dead in them. Death and Hades are under God's control. They will give up what they have because, the, 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 because God decrees it. Because that's why God has allowed them to exist, to come into existence. And remember, just a short time ago, we talked about the Lord Jesus told John that he has the keys to death and Hades. Revelation 20, 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the death of death. Death shall be no more. Revelation 21, 4 says, God has used death for his holy purposes. And now death is abolished. It's no more. It's destroyed. It's annihilated. We won't give it a second thought. This thing that, that, that just surrounds us, this, this condition that we know we're heading for. I joke with my family, you know, at each birthday, it's like, yeah, I'm going further down that hill. At the bottom, there's this big black hole in the ground, and I'm going, I'm picking up speed. I'm heading towards it. We're not, we're not even going to joke about death, I, I don't think, when, when we're in the, the kingdom of heaven. We're not going to think about it. We're going to think how wonderful our Lord is, how everything came together, how it was all for a purpose. Things we don't understand have brought us into this place of love and relationship with God. Revelation 2.11, back to these, these, these letters as we wrap up here. Jesus tells John, write this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We're believers, we have ears, we have spirit ears, we can hear this. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the Lord's promise. The place that death and Hades and Satan and those that have chosen Satan over the Lord go is not for us. We escape it. Paul ends his preaching here on the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of Christ's believers and the destruction of the last enemy. He says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks to be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the message of victory. Christ is victorious over sin and death. So then are we. But that doesn't mean that we sit back or go back to our old ways. Paul, writing under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, refutes the altar call, sinner's prayer, welcome to the family, live your life as before, sort of Christianity. No, that's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace, which is so prevalent today. Paul gives us a command. Brothers and sisters, hear this. This is a command through Paul by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is how we are to live 
this blessed life as Christians. We are to be anchored to the rock of Christ by our triune God. So we are to be, to be is a verb of action. This is something that we do. We are to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And we can be these things because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not by our own strength, not by our own power, but by, by His. He is destroying death and Satan. This process is, is, is ongoing. And we, we are free from slavery and should live accordingly. Let's pray. Father, I give thanks for your word, for your message of hope and victory that you give us. Father, it's, it's astounding. It's, it's so joyful. It's over, over joyful to hear this, to know this. Father, especially so many of us here, most here have experienced death in one form or another, and it's difficult. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who have been under this burden who've been affected by death, by death of loved ones, by the thought of perhaps their own death. Father, I pray that their hearts be lifted, that they focus on the good news, that they see the victory that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has purchased for us and given to us freely. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are suffering we're suffering emotional. They have wounds of the heart. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are suffering because of wounds of the body, physical sickness. Father, I pray for healing of both of these for, for your beloved. Father, we give thanks for being together. We give thanks for the word that has gone out from pulpits throughout the world. Father, give us the wisdom, give us the knowledge, give us the ability to share this good news with others as you see fit. Father, awake, awaken us to these opportunities that you may present to us. Father, I ask for blessing and protection for my friends, my brothers and sisters as they go out from this place today until we gather again. Keep them safe. May they remain focused on the cross and on you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.